Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 204 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mark Adams. He writes for many national magazines, including GQ, Men's Journal, and New York. And he's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Turn Right at Machu Picchu. And we'll be speaking with him today about his book, Meet Me in Atlantis, Across Three Continents in Search of the Legendary Sunken City. And now, here's our interview with Mark Adams. All right, so we're here with Mark Adams. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so your new book is called Meet Me in Atlantis. So how did this book come about? Well, it was sort of an odd thing, as you might imagine, with Atlantis. Hmm. Um, I was researching my last book, which was about the rediscovery of Machu Picchu in Peru, and that occurred in 1911. So I was looking at some old uh, New York Times microfilm from 1911, and I came across a front-page Times story that said, German finds Atlantis in Africa. And I thought, What? <laughs> German finds Atlantis. I didn't know you could even look for Atlantis. I thought it was, you know, one of these underwater bubble cities that you see on Saturday morning cartoons. Um, but I read the story and it says, you know, I think the guy's name was Frobisher, uh, using the clues from Plato's original dialogues, believes that he has finally found the lost sea of Atlantis. And I was thinking, Plato. So I go back and I realized, Okay, everything we really know about the story of Atlantis, the city that supposedly disappeared beneath the waves, comes from two dialogues that the philosopher Plato wrote around 360 BC. So, you know, w once you start getting in that deep, uh, if you have a mindset like my own, which is, you know, always working on sort of the margins of, uh, you know, what is socially acceptable and, <laughs> and scientifically acceptable, uh, I was just sucked in. And the more I started looking at it and realizing that there really are a lot of people, both amateur and professional around the world who are out there looking for the lost city of Atlantis, I just found that irresistible. So, you know, next thing I knew, I was on an airplane and, and traveling around the Mediterranean looking at, at the most promising sites. Yeah, yeah. And it's such an interesting book. And I guess I didn't appreciate before I read this book how interesting Plato's life was. Could you just kind of give us some of the highlights of Plato's life? Well, Plato did live an amazing life. He came from Athenian nobility. Um, it comes up in the Atlantis story, actually, that his, I think it's great, 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 great grandfather was a fellow named Solon, who, um, gives us the adjective Solonic, uh, and was beloved because he took over from Draco, who gives us the term, uh, draconian. Uh, so you can understand that. Um, and, you know, he was a, um, you know, sort of a wealthy kid who fell into the circle of Socrates, who was one of the, the great, um, as they were called then, um, sophists, uh, teachers around, uh, the area of the Acropolis who would teach the, the wealthy young men to become members of the democracy. Because if you were, you know, a man of property in Athens, it was a true democracy, one man, one vote. Um, so, he fell into to the orbit of Socrates. Um, Socrates, of course, is famously put to death by the uh, Athenian state at a certain point for, among other things, corrupting the youth of Athens. Plato goes on this incredible sort of study abroad trip afterward uh, around the Mediterranean in which he stops at southern, uh, what is now southern Italy, and studies with a group known as the Pythagoreans. Um, 
who were, um, you know, traced their lineage back to the original Pythagoras, he of the three, four, five triangle theorem. Um, and they were sort of like, uh, proto physicists who were trying to use numbers and math and geometry to find the sort of, uh, secret code of the universe. And they'd actually had some successes like the three, four, five triangle that made them believe that this was possible. Um, he probably also stopped in, uh, Egypt on that trip, and he almost certainly stopped in Syracuse as well. Um, he goes back to Athens and eventually starts what is generally regarded as the first university in uh, Western civilization, known as the Academy, and he sort of settles in there and starts writing for the sake of his students these dialogues that we now know as the corpus of Plato, things like the Republic and, you know, famous uh, uh, dialogues. Um, so the story of Atlantis itself comes up right after the Republic, and it's it's part of a dialogue that's called the Timaeus, which many consider to be the first great work of science, and that is Plato's attempt to give sort of a Pythagorean logic to the cosmos, even though the telescope has not yet been invented. Um, and that's one of the the other things that attracted me. It's like you know Plato not only in, you know, invented or, you know, translated or passed down this story of Atlantis, but he stuck it in between two of his most important works as like a bridge from one to the other. So that to me called out as well. Right. And so the Atlantis that Plato describes is a lot different from the one that we imagine today in pop culture. Could you kind of just sketch out what Plato's Atlantis actually was? Yeah, you know, like I said, there's no bubble city, there's no nuclear-powered spaceships, there's no Scrooge McDuck, uh, you know, throwing piles of cash up in the air, the various other versions of Atlantis you may have seen. Um, what he describes is a maritime culture that exists on an island that has a capital city made of rings, concentric rings of land and water. And um, it's a very fertile uh, civilization. It has three growing seasons a year. And, you know, it gives very specific descriptions of this capital city, of the temples that are there and the distances between the rings and the size of the temples and where it is in relation to uh, a piece of land called Gades, which seems to refer to an old Phoenician term, Gadir, meaning walled or enclosed area or city. Um, and, you know, probably the, the key thing about the Atlantis story, which usually gets buried, is that it's a, it's a war story. It's a story about the Atlanteans, uh, attacking Athens. And when they attack Athens, uh, Athens is, is triumphant because, uh, Atlantis has become debased and the gods decide to punish Atlantis. And in the end, uh, Atlantis and Athens both are destroyed by earthquakes and floods in a single disastrous night. Um, so that part of the story is what has kind of been passed down to us as Atlantis sinking to the bottom of the ocean. But what Plato says is that it was destroyed in a day and a night by a natural cataclysm. Right. And so this was a story, as you said, I think that Plato, Plato's reporting, but that even if it's true, was passed down through many, many people over many, many years. Right. I mean, you know, the, the problem with Plato is that, you know, I mean, the, the thing that people who want to find Atlantis latch on to is, hey, Plato, you know, the greatest Western philosopher of all time. It must be true. You know, hey, Plato, he says in his Atlantis story multiple times, the story I'm telling here is true. Well, you know, Plato is a very tricky writer, um, as, as several have pointed out, you know, 
um, you know, he, he may be the most obscure philosopher of all time. You know, we're still interpreting him. The, Re- the Republic was, uh, you know, a foundational text of both, uh, Christianity and fascism. So you can read almost anything into Plato you want. Um, that said, you know, this story of Atlantis, um, serves as a bridge from the Republic where Socrates tells the, his, gives his rendition of a, of, you know, what a just society is and how a government should be run and philosopher kings and, you know, all sorts of deep stuff. Um, and then in the next dialogue, the Timaeus, it starts out, it's the next day. It's a, it's a, a well-known Greek celebration, Athenian celebration. And he says, well, let's tell a story to describe what I was talking about yesterday in re- referring to the Republic. And he points at uh, character Critias, and Critias says, okay, I'm going to tell a story that was passed down by Solon, the, Plato's great-great-great-great-grandfather, um, that he got from Egypt when he visited there, and the date he gives would have, you know, been roughly 600 BCE. Um, and he said that the priest there got it from an inscription. So, you know, whether Plato A made this up, B retold it and changed it, C retold it and thought it was true, but it wasn't true, or D retold it, thought it was true, and it was true, we have no way of knowing. Um, all we can do is sort of follow the clues that he gives and see if we can confirm some of the information that he passes along. Right. And, and you say he gives very specific details, um, some of which are really hard to believe, right? In particular, that this has happened something like 9,000 years ago, and the scale of the city is just gigantic. Right. Well, not the city itself, but there's a plane attached to the city that has a canal dug around it. And, you know, the, the problem with people who are searching for Atlantis, and, you know, it, it happened to me as well. Once you see all this detail, you're like, who would make up all this detail if there, you know, weren't some truth to this story? I mean, when he tells the, the, the myth of the cave, you know, where people, you know, see the shadows flickering against the wall, you know, he doesn't give, you know, 50 different clues as to where the location of the cave was. He just goes straight into the story. Um, but here, you know, he, he does talk about this enormous plane that was dug to a certain depth and a certain width. And I, you know, I did a little back of the envelope, uh, calculation and it was like, wait a minute. If for this plane to have been dug, they would have had to remove a hundred times as much earth as was removed to make the Panama Canal. You know, so this can't be true. Um, and at the same time, he says, you know, 9,000 is the number of years that have passed, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people latch onto that because that's roughly where the last ice age ends. And they say, okay, there's all sorts of melting going on. The seas would have been rising. Um, but we don't have any evidence that, you know, there was an Athens at that time. We don't have any evidence that there was a, certainly a war in the Mediterranean at that time. So, you know, it becomes a problem figuring out where Plato's exaggerating and where maybe he might want us to believe that he's he's telling the real truth. Right. And so then how did we get from the city that Plato describes to the underwater bubble city that sank into the Atlantic that everybody knows kind of from pop culture? Well, you know, it, it was not a big deal to search for Atlantis for, you know, 2200 or so years. Um, you know, there was some debate. Uh, there seems to be Aristotle, who is Plato's prize pupil, uh, seems to refer to it. Um, it's 
some people say it, it, it's him saying it didn't exist. Some people say it's him saying it did exist. Um, another student may have sent uh, an envoy to Egypt to look for the inscription that Plato mentions. Um, but, you know, no one's actually really looking for it in earnest until the late 19th century when um, a German businessman named Heinrich Schliemann um, uses uh, clues from Homer's Iliad to find what is still generally regarded to be the lost city of Troy. And up to that point, um, you know, Troy was thought to be a myth, uh, uh, certainly a legend, you know, maybe had some truth buried in it, but largely fictional. So, you know, that's in 1871. After that, people start to say, hey, Plato's got all this detail in the Atlantis story. Why don't we start to look for, for that as well? And one of those people who tries to find it is a, an ex-congressman from Minnesota named Ignatius Donnelly, um, who has been described as, as uh, I think, both the one of the most unheralded brilliant men in American history, and I'm, I can't remember the exact quote, but something like the, the greatest loser in America <laughs> or something like that. So, you know, he, <laughs> a wide variety of opinions. And what he does is he sits down at his, his desk in what is sort of a failed housing project outside of Minneapolis and pulls together every single scrap of information he can find about the ancient world and essentially creates this idea that the Atlanteans were this super race that when their city sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and the tops of the mountains of, of Atlantis are now uh, the Azores Mountains just poking out above the waves and the Gulf Stream that goes around the Atlantic is now, you know, sort of tracing the circle of where Atlantis was, according to Donnelly. Um, you know, these super Atlanteans, uh, in 9600 BCE hop into their boats and go off to found every great culture of the ancient world, everything from, you know, Egypt to China to the Aztecs and Mayans and the Incas and, um, you know, and this, this sort of idea that the Atlanteans were a super race, none of which appears in Plato. He says, you know, they had some big boats and stuff, but, but none of this stuff about metallurgy and, and, you know, mining and advanced wisdom and stuff like that appears in the original story. And it's really Donnelly who, you know, starts the ball rolling. People like Madame Blavatsky. Uh, she gets involved, you know, the sort of theosophist and, and she's the one who says, you know, it was an ancient race a million years ago or something like that. And th they had nuclear powered, uh, airships and magic crystals and blah, blah, blah. And it's really that era that, that invents the Atlantis that we know now. And which is, which is the reason why if you talk to, uh, you know, a philosophy professor or an ancient history professor, nobody in academia takes Atlantis seriously. You know, I think probably half of the emails that I sent to addresses ending in dot edu, uh, no one ever responded to them because Atlantis is like career kryptonite. You're not allowed to talk about Atlantis because of those sorts of things. Everybody thinks it's, you know, very fringy and, and crazy. Right. I think we should say that uh, Blavatsky and this other guy, Edgar Casey, they were getting their information about Atlantis from their psychic powers. Yes, right? yes. Uh, Casey in particular, who, you know, turns up on TV, he not him himself, but his followers, um, you know, they he supposedly said Atlantis was in the Bahamas and they're still spending a fair amount of money out there in the Bahamas. And they found this thing that looks kind of like a road. They call it the Bimini Road. And occasionally you'll see, you know, specials on TV, like one hour specials. Um, and they're all underwritten 
written by Casey's people trying to, to prove his theory. But it, these were all visions that he had back in the 1920s and 1930s. While, while I think like, you know, giving, uh, health related examinations to people. So, you know, there's, there's absolutely no proof behind the, no evidence. He, he seems to have gotten everything out of Plato like everybody else. Yeah. Well, so I have to say, when I started reading this book, I was kind of expecting it to all be people like Casey and Blavatsky that you would be traveling around and meeting just these total lunatics. But I thought pretty much everyone that you met in this book seemed fairly normal. Um, is that how you, <laughs> well, that how you it's, see it? It's not because there aren't a lot of crazies out there. Uh, but no, definitely the people who I ended up with, and I, um, I should say I, I, what I ended up doing was going to Ireland and meeting a fellow named Tony O'Connell who runs this enormous site called the Atlantopedia, uh, which has thousands of entries and it's very level headed and, and, you know, pokes, uh, fun at, at people who try to come up with outlandish ideas. And, um, you know, Tony's not a professional. He's just a guy who's loved, uh, Atlantis lore for decades. So I sat down with him and we talked for a week and, you know, looked at every angle. And, and I finally decided that there were four viable candidates for where Atlantis, if it did exist, could have been. Uh, which was southern Spain, uh, Malta, uh, the island of Santorini in Greece, and uh, an area slightly inland on the Atlantic coast of Morocco near what is now the city of Agadir. Um, and each of these sites had uh, at least one proponent who was, was pushing that hypothesis pretty hard. And as much as I could, I went to each of the sites and visited uh, with the person pushing a, a particular hypothesis um, to weigh the pros and cons of each. Right. And each of these sites kind of meet some of Plato's criteria, and then you really have to stretch to meet some of the other ones. So people will come up with different explanations for why Plato's timeline was off or, you know. Right, right. People are willing to do all sorts of acrobatics to make their, their hypothesis fit, uh, you know, uh, into, to Plato's, uh, evidence that he puts forth. Um, and, you know, I mean, th there are people who push, uh, there's a guy pushing a site in the Altiplano of Bolivia. There are people pushing Indonesia. Um, you know, there, the, you can get, pretty tangential pretty quickly um the things you really would need to show that atlantis had existed somewhere would probably be uh a city or a civilization that was hit by a watery cataclysm of some point um prior to, to plato uh some sort of you know concentric rings uh around a, a central city and um you know a relationship to one of the ancient areas known as Gades that Plato mentions in his story, um, um, which would also be tied to another of his great clues, which is that it was opposite the pillars of Heracles or what we would call the pillars of Hercules. Um, so most people tend to think the pillars of Hercules were straight, the Strait of Gibraltar between Spain and Morocco. Um, but there were others the the Strait of Messina between uh, Sicily and the boot of Italy is another, the, classical uh pillars of hercules and there there were others throughout the mediterranean um so you know all all four of the sites that i ended up with all four of those hypotheses were a pretty good match for all of those things that i just mentioned um it's when you get into the nitty-gritty and the numbers and things like that that people start bending over backwards to make everything fit yeah well talk a little bit about how you said 
uh, that Atlantis has become kind of toxic in academia. And one of the guys you talked to actually said that he knows other archaeologists who agree with some of his ideas, but they can't even admit it because of the damage it might do to their academic reputation. Yes, yes. And in fact, I I uh, emailed a leading archaeologist um, who specializes in finding ancient cities and, and um, floated the idea of looking for Atlantis. And she got back to me and said, you know, I hope you abandon this project for the sake of your reputation as a writer. <laughs> um, you know, and you know, as I mentioned, a lot of people just didn't get back to me at all. Um, and I think it is because of, um, A, uh, Ignatius Donnelly, the congressman who came up with the, um, first big Atlantis theory that was, you know, pretty crazy. Um, the idea that he came up with is now known as hyper diffusionism, which is that, you know, all great ancient cultures came out of a single source. And this is really, really unpopular in the humanities, um, because it, you know, it indicates that there was a, a super race, you know, thousands of years ago from which we all descend. Um, and the other thing is just, you know, these, these crazy psychic ideas. Um, you know, the Nazis had a whole division devoted to trying to prove that the Atlanteans had been actually ancient Aryans who passed down their wisdom to the Nazis and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's just, there's so much crazy and these crazies make so much noise that I guess academics have decided that it's not even worth going into, even though it is, you know, think about it, you know, it's, it's Plato. It's an unsolved mystery from antiquity. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the great unsolved mysteries of all time. And anybody who did, come up with a, uh, you know, uh, believable answer to this, um, you know, would be famous overnight, but I guess they decide it's not worth the hassle. Yeah. So, I mean, so now that the book's been out for a while, would you say that your reputation has been completely destroyed? <laughs> well, mostly destroyed. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's funny. Most people have had a re reaction similar to your own, which is that, you know, I saw this book and I thought it was going to be another one of these crazy, you know, I found Atlantis. Here's my theory. And now I'm going to prove it to you over the next 300 pages. Whereas it's more, it, it unfolds more like a mystery story because I'm learning as I go along and finding things out. Um, you know, I'm digging deep into areas into which I did not have any expertise and, you know, areas that are, uh, you know, not delved much into at all, you know, like Plato's, the, the Pythagorean influence on Plato and, and Plato's use of numbers and things like that. Um, so it hasn't, you know, completely destroyed my reputation. Uh, but, uh, it hasn't, I've not been heralded as the man who solved the uh, Atlantis <laughs> mystery either, unfortunately. So when you approached publishers with this, were they how, – how receptive were they to an Atlantis book like this? Well, you know, my publisher is Penguin, and they were pretty cool with it because I just published, uh, you know, a critically acclaimed book that sold pretty well. Um, so when I came to them and said, you know, I want, I want to follow the search for Atlantis, they got that I was writing a book about the people searching for Atlantis. I was not writing a book about my search for Atlantis. Um and I'm not sure that I made that difference clear in the original title <laughs> to the book, which is why we have a new subtitle on the, the uh, paperback version. Right. I mean, one thing I thought was interesting is that a lot of these experts you talked to were pretty measured and reasonable. But then when they get featured in TV shows about Atlantis, they always get edited in a really deceptive way to make it look like they're making much more bold pronouncements than they actually are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, 
most of the people I would say who I spoke to said that it happened to them at one point. And, you know, I totally get that. I mean, I must get a phone call from ancient aliens like once a month. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> this is the going, TV show, ancient yeah, aliens. Yeah, the TV show, the ancient aliens. aliens. And I'm like, yeah. you know, I'm not going on that show. You know, if you give me a million dollars, <laughs> you're going to take whatever, you know, words come out of my mouth and make them fit whatever, you know, paradigm you're pushing in a particular week. Um, and a lot of these people, these experts have, have been unpleasantly surprised by, you know, someone calling them at 10 o'clock at night and saying, you know, did you know that, uh, you're on the discovery channel right now in a special called Atlantis finally found or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So if you, if you're an Atlantis expert, be careful. Yeah. Well, so yeah, so there's kind of an economic incentive for these TV shows to play up Atlantis, but then there's also, uh, an incentive for these uh, locations you visit to play it up as kind of a tourist attraction. You know, there's only one place that I think pushes the tourist angle a little bit, and that is the island of Santorini. Um, and that's because that is the most famous site. It's the only one where, um, you know, at, at one point around 1967, 1968, there was an oceanologist named uh, James Mavor. Uh, who was fairly well known in the U.S. and he was at Woods Hole, which is those are the people who found the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean. Um, and you know he got a lot of press in places like Time Magazine, the New York Times, because at the time he decided to prove that the island of Santorini was actually Plato's Atlantis. Um, they found this incredible set of ruins called uh, Akrotiri, which you can still visit now, um, that were buried by uh, a volcanic explosion. And, you know, somehow the idea that this volcanic explosion twisted into a, a you know, earthquake and, and flood uh, that destroyed uh, Atlantis, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a stretch when you think about it. But at the time, it got a lot of press. Jacques Cousteau showed up and made a special. So there is a certain element on the island of Santorini that still pushes the Atlantis angle. There's an Atlantis hotel. There's an Atlantis bookshop. Um, a lot of it, though, is tongue-in-cheek. Um, <laughs> you know, most most people who come to uh, Santorini are, are coming to eat well and, and park their yacht there for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of reasons, as we've been saying, to doubt Plato's story. But then there are some kind of interesting reasons to maybe think that he might be telling describing something accurate i mean because you say because in this story where he mentions atlantis he also talks about ancient athens and we don't know really where atlantis might have been but we definitely know where athens is and yeah some of the um archaeology has confirmed a lot of the fairly specific details in plato's account yeah what's interesting is that um you know plato writes about athens um as part of the atlantis story and everybody forgets this um you know gates right over it because they're so busy looking for the original Atlantis. And there are details in his description of ancient Athens at the time of the war with the Atlanteans. And he says, you know, there was a spring on the Acropolis and it was plugged up by an earthquake. And that was around the time that uh, the Greeks lost their written language. Um, and, you know, in the 20th century, uh, archaeologists found that, um, you know, pottery shards showing wow there really was an earthquake at the acropolis around 1200 bce that 
plugged up a spring. And this is right around the time when uh, Linear B seems to have disappeared from Greece, you know, the old uh, written language that um, was not deciphered until the, the middle of the 20th century. So there are all these details that, you know, Plato couldn't have known and yet seemed to have been passed down to him in some sort of oral form. So you, you, you know, you have to wonder, okay, how much of the Atlantis half of the story came to him in the same way and how much of it did he believe? Uh, and unfortunately from, from this vantage point, we can't know that. Right. And then another thing I thought was really interesting was that we mentioned that the dimensions of these channels around the city of Atlantis seem very hard to credit. But you you quote one professor as saying, well, maybe there might have been an uh, an asteroid impact um, and a meteor impact that created a big sort of crater in this shape. Yeah. And then people might have built a civilization over that. So that I mean, that at least seems to put that kind of structure in the realm of possibility. Well, there are, there are a bunch of things, um, involving, you know, ancient catastrophes, possibly from space that seem to intersect with Plato's Atlantis story. Um, in addition to talking about the, the watery end of Atlantis, he talks about, uh, or the, the priest in Egypt who is telling the original version of the story talks about, uh, you know, a- ancient, uh, catastrophes like Phaethon's comet that, you know, burns up the earth. Um, and that is, uh, generally, uh, believed to have been an actual, uh, you know, meteorite or, or comet event, um, that happened in antiquity and was passed down orally. Um, you know, there is a group called the, uh, was it Holocene Impact Working Group, which is real scientists. Some of them are, are here at Columbia University who have been looking at what's called the Burkle Crater, which is a, a big depression in the middle of the Indian Ocean that they believe may have been caused by a comet impact around 2800 BCE. Um, and they found all these, what they call chevrons, um, sort of like arrowhead shaped, uh, splashes on the, uh, coast of Madagascar that indicate that, you know, some sort of huge splash went miles and miles and miles inland. Um, and perhaps it was caused by this, this, uh, comet impact around 2800 BC. There's a guy named Bruce Massey. He was an archaeologist. He used to be the official archaeologist for the, the land around Los Alamos. And he's probably done the most interesting work. He's examined all these ancient flood myths and found things in common. And he thinks there may have been uh, a single event. And he actually pegs the date to, to 2807 BCE, uh, in which, you know, possibly, um, a comet impact, uh, like the Burkle crater, uh, you know, caused, you know, floods around the world so great that it was recorded in many, many ancient cultures, you know, including things like Noah's Ark, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood of Deucalion and things like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely a possibility. There do seem to be a lot of similarities in these ancient stories. Right. And, and you also talked to a bunch of scientists who are oceanographers who were pointing yeah. out that, that sea levels, especially if the story was 9,000 years old, that sea levels have risen significantly in probably most interesting sites along coastlines and rivers and things are, are 30 feet underwater at this point. Right. Well, that was, those are the guys up at Woods Hole, the guys who found the Titanic. Um, and what they pointed out to me was, you know, whether or not there's any truth to the Atlantis story, 
Um, if you look within a few miles of the coast, certainly of the Mediterranean, um, you know, where would an ancient culture have built uh, a settlement? Well, where the river hits the sea. Um, all of those areas, if they were built on floodplains or low areas, um, you know, as the waters rose 10, 20, 30 feet, you know, all, all of those areas would have been inundated and are now underwater and probably silt. So there are, you know, a hundred cities to be found in the Mediterranean that we just haven't looked hard enough for yet. Hmm. So, so how likely do you think it is that Atlantis will be dis- discovered by James Cameron? <laughs> I would say it's pretty unlikely because I think if there is an original Atlantis that inspired Plato's tale, um, I think it's probably on the coast or pretty close to the coast. Because I think the the watery cataclysm we're talking about that follows an earthquake, if you think about it, is probably a tsunami. So it's not, you know, it's not under 500 or 1,000 feet of water. It might be on a, an area that's still uh, above sea level or, you know, just under the water. So I think, you know, if if the original Atlantis, if there's some evidence is found, it's going to be found right along the coast, not at the bottom of the sea. Hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier uh, Scrooge McDuck. And yeah. I was just wondering to what, like, what percentage of Atlantologists were inspired by Scrooge McDuck or Indiana Jones or things like that to, to go a into large, this field? <laughs> a large number of them. You know, uh, Reiner Cune, who's a, uh, an Atlantologist, he's a physics professor in, in, um, uh, Braunschweig, Germany. Um, you know, when I went to go visit him, uh, he, he sat me down and he started talking about his theory and I said, well, how did you get started in this? And he said, let me show you the publication. And he goes over to the wall and pulls it off. And I was like, oh, okay, here it comes. It's probably some old archaeology physics journal or something. And he holds it out and it's, you know, Scrooge Mitch Duck goes to the city of Atlantis. I was like, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're not in Kansas anymore here. <laughs> um, one that comes up again and again, and I've even heard Ira Glass from This American Life cite this, is, uh, do you know Von Daniken's Chariots of the yeah, Gods? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of people get into things like Atlantology through Chariots of the Gods, and, you know, they read it and they're like, wow, this is so cool. You know, aliens came and made the Nazca lines in Peru or whatever. And then they think about it for a little bit, and they're like, nah. But then they start digging into it, and they're like, wow, you know, there really is you know, some interesting, legitimate stuff in here. Um, and Tony O'Connell, the the fellow who started the Atlantopedia, he told me the same thing. He said, you know, I started reading Glendanikin and then I realized it was all nonsense, but I was hooked. So I, I you know, found that little bit of Atlantis that, that actually was true and started, you know, pulling on the thread. And then, you know, here we are 30 years later. Huh. I mean, in the course of researching this book, did you look at the the pop culture, Stargate Atlantis or Disney's Atlantis, any of that? Were you interested in any of that stuff at all? I was a little bit, but, you know, it typically they're just interested in the cartoon version of Atlantis. They don't know the original story so much other than a, a civilization was destroyed by a flood. Um you know, they're much more the Ignatius Donnelly version of Atlantis, <laughs> where, you know, this uh, great civilization is almost crushed, but people get into their boats or spaceships or whatever and, you know, sail off to, to repopulate the universe. Um, you know, there's a, a surprising lack of interest in the original story. Um, but, you know, it's funny. They, scientists won't take Atlantis itself very seriously, but man, do they sure like naming 
boats and spaceships <laughs> and telescopes after Atlantis. It's got to be one of, if not the most popular name for uh, equipment. Right. Well, and it, it has such a, a romance and a, an appeal to it. You actually say about three quarters of the way through the book, you say that I had completely lost my journalistic objectivity. You know, I wanted to find Atlantis. Oh, absolutely. After talking to these people, and these, these, you know, people, I call them Atlantologists, um, you know, after sitting with them and hearing their stories and, you know, these are, these are intelligent people. They're IT specialists. One's a pediatrician. Um, you know, one is a, a leading geophysicist in, in Greece who has, you know, found, you know, things from antiquity that were believed to be, you know, too fantastic to have actually existed. And he gone, went in and did ground penetrating radar and proved, okay, yeah, they, the Persians really did dig this, you know, canal wide enough for two ships to pass each other in Southern Greece. Um, you know, but you, I mean, you sit and you listen to their stories and eventually you think, you know, I really, really hope this is true. <laughs> and then somebody finds it eventually because it would just be so cool. It's so Indiana Jones. It's so treasure map. Um, that it would just, you know, if, if somehow someone found an inscription in Egypt that matched the old story of Atlantis, which I think would, would, you know, tend to indicate that, that Plato was largely telling the truth. Uh, I think that would just be the greatest thing ever. Right. So to what extent do you think like Donnelly and Blavatsky and all this crazy stuff, did that make people want to find Atlantis more? Cause I mean, I mean, there's things like, um, Tartessos, right? There are all these sure. lost cities that, you know, don't have the same romance of Atlantis. Is it like how much do you think that the the crazy stuff actually contributed to people wanting to find this this one I think particular? The, I think the crazy stuff is the major gateway drug. Um, in both that, you know, it's, it's conspiracy theory, you know, they're hiding the truth from us stuff. Um, and it's, you know, it's word of mouth. It's a, it's a great story. It's, it's more interesting than Plato's version. You know, Plato says, you know, they had, they had triremes, which are, you know, boats that those big boats that, you know, like slaves would pull the galley. Um, you know, it's much more interesting if they had nuclear powered <laughs> crystal airships, right? Um, and because that, has inspired so much pop culture. I think that is the, the door through which a lot of people enter the, the Atlantology world. Um, you know, which is not, which is not to say, you know, that's the worst thing. If once they get there, they educate themselves a little bit and realize, okay, there's all this other interesting stuff going on. And that's one of my points in the book is, you know, look, there's so much cool stuff that we don't know that we could dig into deeper in this original Atlantis story. There's no need to use psychic powers or, or stuff like that. There's enough in there now uh, for, you know, a, a great treasure hunt if we just dig hard enough. Yeah, well, it's interesting because in the book you quote uh, a professor, you know, this we're talking about Plato, who you say is uh, universally pretty much acknowledged as the greatest philosopher of all time. Yeah. And the idea of his that's had the most that's gotten the most uh, dissemination and had the most influence on people is this one little story about a, a city that was destroyed. Yeah, that was actually a quote from uh, the philosopher uh, Julia Annas, who's like one of the leading scholars of Plato. She's a, a big um, Atlanta skeptic, but she, she, in one of her introduction, pardon me, introduction to Plato books, uh, writes, you know, in, in terms of the number of people reached, uh, the thing that Plato wrote that had the greatest impact was probably his story of Atlantis. Uh, so if you think about that, it's like, wow, 
that's uh that's big um i i would probably take issue with that uh is in that uh, the republic probably had uh a greater influence i think that timaeus with its description of a divine craftsman who could be uh, a, a model for a monotheistic God and, and certainly was a big influence on Christianity. Um, you know, I think those things might have had a bigger influence, but you know, Atlantis is certainly in the top five. <laughs> well, yeah. And you mentioned that there's all this sort of odd mystical math in Plato. Um, yeah. could you talk a little bit more about that and the influence that the Pythagoreans had on him? Well, the thing is, you know, Plato uses numbers a lot and there's a, Eminent philosophy historian, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he wrote, he, he came out and said, you know, look, the number parts of Plato, Plato's number theory, are the most difficult parts of the most difficult philosopher. <laughs> so that's why people don't like to engage with this stuff. Um, a lot of people who go looking for Atlantis just assume that these numbers that he gives are like GPS coordinates. But, you know, Plato was deeply influenced by the Pythagoreans, you know, over the entryway to the, the academy, his university in Athens, he had the words, none but geometers may enter here. Um, so, you know, he was using a, a deeply Pythagorean curriculum. Um, the Pythagoreans believed that numbers were not just figures, not just amounts. They thought numbers were living things. Numbers were male or female. Uh, you know, numbers had vibrations. Uh, it numbers symbolize things, you know, the numerology can be traced back to the Pythagoreans. Um, but once again, we're getting into that sort of weird area where, where experts are not comfortable discussing these kind of things. Um, but one thing that has come up recently, um, I talked to a guy named John Bremer up in Vermont who, um, on his own, counted all the syllables in Plato's works in ancient Greek. And recently, about five years ago, a, a, a computer science guy in England did the same thing. It's called stichometry or sim, uh, syllable counting. And independently, they both discovered that uh, Plato's work seemed to follow a 12-part sort of outline. Well, 12 was a very important number to the Pythagoreans because they discovered that music seemed to have a 12-part scale, like the seven white keys and the five black keys. Um, and if you had, uh, like fractions or ratios that were clean, like a two to one ratio or a three to two ratio, you got a harmonic tone from that. Um, if you plucked a monochord, it's a little complicated, but basically the, the cleaner the fraction, the clearer the tone. Whereas if you, you know, did like seven twelfths, it would be disharmonious. So what these guys have figured out is that in Plato's works, if you go to, you know, the sixth, you know, halfway through, you're at six out of 12 or one to two, a harmonious ratio. Um, Plato is talking about harmonious things there. If you go to eight out of 12 or, or two over three, he's talking about harmonious things there. Whereas if you go to seven over 12 or 11 out of 12, he's talking about disharmonious things. He's talking about sicknesses and things like that. So um, they think that there may be a structure to Plato's works that we're not even looking at yet because no one has dug that deep. And in the words of John Bremer, you know, the, this uh, musical structure beneath Plato's work may be as important or more important than the words themselves. Right. Well, I was really struck by this line in your book where you said, 
in reference to the city of Atlantis being these concentric circles, you say, if you want my honest opinion, I think Plato just had a thing for circles. It's true. It's true. Um, you know, he was a geometer. Um, I think some of what he was writing in Atlantis was intended to be taken at face value. And I think a lot of it was stuff that he was telegraphing to his students at the academy, his students being you know, second generation Pythagorean thinkers, uh, would have intuited right away what he was talking about. But, you know, what we see is just a bunch of numbers. We can't understand what he's getting at. Um, so I'm sure there's all sorts of symbolism and tricks and things in there that, uh, Plato did for his students that, you know, we, we can't even begin to intuit. Right. There was a line too that struck me what you're talking about. Pythagoras's that, ma- that Pythagoras believed math was kind of like the invisible source code to the universe. Absolutely. You know, I think the the two of the big discoveries that Pythagoras is credited with are one the the Pythagorean theorem, the three four five triangle, um, and this actually a, a philosophy professor at Yale, Robert Brumbaugh, demonstrated that this actually shows up in one of the most important parts of the Republic when Plato is is describing. Um, the five kinds of, or the four levels of knowledge. Um, you know, Plato seems to be hiding, you know, references to the golden ratio, you know, the Fibonacci sequence, uh, the, the Pythagorean triangle, you know, in, in his work, you can, you can see the references if you, if you tease them out a little bit. You know, the other thing that the Pythagoreans, uh, realized, which, um, totally makes sense that they would think that there was a, a secret code behind the universe to be discovered was that, you know, certain uh, elements of music, you know, certain clear notes um, corresponded to mathematical ratios. If you, you know, in the story with Pythagoras, he's, he's using, I think, mallets of different uh, lengths, you know, like a, a, he uses one mallet that is, say, you know, one arm's length long, and then he uses a mallet that's half that long, and he realizes that the the tone of the metal he's hitting changes, and therefore, you know, he, he keeps, you know, uh, trying different lengths, and he realizes that certain, what we would call notes, correspond to certain, you know, lengths divided by other lengths. Um, I'm, I'm sort of butchering basic <laughs> musical theory here, uh, so please don't send in angry letters, but <laughs> essentially... Any musicologist can tell you, yes, there is, uh, mathematics behind music. There are certain ratios that are clean and, and, you know, certain that are, are less clean. Um, so, you know, having found out something like that, no wonder the Pythagoreans thought that, you know, there were numbers behind everything. If you can find the, the mathematical code behind the most, you know, one of the most ephemeral human pleasures, music, you know, why wouldn't you be able to find the mathematical code behind, you know, every other kind of physics in the universe. Why wouldn't you think numbers were living things? Um, unfortunately, they didn't seem to take it much further than that. Right, because I know there are physicists today who will say, you know, who work in string theory and things, who will say that uh, there's error-correcting codes in string theory equations, and maybe we're in a hologram or a computer simulation or, or something like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Who, who knows? It could all be a, a big AI experiment. Yeah, so maybe Pythagoras was onto something there. Well, he might have been. He might have been. You know, it was it was a kind of proto-physics is what it was. It was an attempt to give, you know, a, a rigorous logic to, you know, essentially everything. And, um, you know, anytime you undertake something that big, it's going to sound a little bit crazy, you know, 2,500 years later. 
Um, all right. So I, I'm, I'm just kind of curious to ask you about this because Plato was just in the news recently because yeah. uh, Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece where he basically said that Plato didn't believe in democracy because of he said people like Donald Trump would be elected sooner or later. Right. And I was just curious <laughs> if you had any thoughts about that, having read all this Plato recently. Well, that, I think, goes back to, um, you know, Socrates being put to death because, you know, for Socrates to be put to death, they had to put it to a vote. Um, so what, what Plato believed was that, um, you know, democracy, because a lot of people were stupid, <laughs> was, you know, not such a good form of government. What we needed instead was, and this is another thing that comes up in the Republic, a philosopher king, a guy who studies math for 20 years and, you know, gains philosophical wisdom and by the age of 50 is ready to rule rather than having this sort of, you know, mob rule with the flavor of the month and, you know, guys who have been trained to give fancy speeches to convince people of things, you know, um, Plato saw one of the great, uh, tragedies of his lifetime to be the Peloponnesian war in which, you know, um, the Athenians suffered, you know, huge losses sending fleets off to, to attack Syracuse and places like that because there were votes, uh, in, in, you know, the, the center of town to, uh, support such things. So Plato thought, you know, no, democracy is, is one of the worst forms of government in its pure form. <laughs> well, it was funny because you, uh, you talk about how, uh, Plato had this chance to tutor Dionysus II. Yes. And maybe put some of his ideas in the Republic into practice, but Dionysus was probably not too thrilled with the idea of having to study for 30 years before he could, you know, before he could start ruling. Right. It's, it's not every, uh, great philosopher who has a chance to, uh, put his ideas into action, but, uh, it seems that Plato actually did with, with Dionysus II, the, um, the young king of, uh, Syracuse. And, you know, because Plato said the philosopher king needed to study these boring subjects for decades before he was ready to rule, it's, it's quite understandable that, uh, young, Hot-blooded Dionysus would would not be interested in in studying Pythagorean math for say twenty years before <laughs> uh, actually taking over his armies. So he and Plato did not get along so well. Yeah, I also just want to mention the story where Plato was almost sold into slavery. I'd never heard that one before. Yeah, this is all from uh, what's called the seventh epistle or the seventh letter. Um, it's a an ancient letter that we're not 100% sure if Plato wrote it or maybe someone who knew Plato well wrote it. There are some people who think it's just a complete fraud, um, but I think it's generally regarded to be based on Plato's true life story. And it seems that at some point, uh, Plato uh, aggravated a tyrant uh, whose, whose kingdom he was visiting. I can't remember who it was. And the tyrant said, all right, Plato, enough with you. I'm selling you into slavery. And as the story goes, it was actually the Pythagorean king of southern Italy uh, who sent a ship to save Plato and, and rescue him. So the, the you know, the Pythagorean uh, uh, gang takes care of its own. <laughs> uh, I also I can't help, I can't help mentioning this one line from the book. This is uh, this is Madame Blavatsky's explanation for why Atlantis fell. Uh, you say uh, she attributes its downfall to something that seems obvious in retrospect. A group practicing black magic spoiled everything by breeding human-animal hybrids akin to centaurs, which were exploited as warriors and sex slaves. 
exactly. Uh, you know, so we, we wonder why the Madame Blavatsky version is more popular than the sort of, you know, dry version where, uh, <laughs> you know, a city, uh, loses its way morally and then becomes debased and is hit by a wave. You know, I mean, Blavatsky's version is, is a lot sexier. You know, it look, it would look better on the, the big screen. <laughs> Um, and I also really liked this where you said that uh, Donnelly's book kind of reminded you of this book that you had that talked about this conspiracy theory about Paul McCartney. Yes, definitely. You know, because they both pull together, uh, you know, every scrap of possible information. And I don't know if you've ever seen these these Paul McCartney is dead books from the mid 60s. But it's like, you know, if you look at the back of the album cover, you know, Paul's back is turned, but everyone else is <laughs> facing the camera. That's a, you know, a signal that, uh, you know, in Finland, if you don't face the camera, you're actually a dead person or, you know, the walrus is a symbol of death in I am the walrus <laughs> or, I mean, it just piles and piles of this nonsense that, the, you know, the idea that Paul McCartney might not actually be dead, uh, you know, it never seems to have occurred to these people. Right. But just this idea that if you, Start off with your theory and then just go looking for anything that could possibly support your theory. And that's the only, yep. uh, you know, heuristic that you apply to it. You know, you're going to end up with a gigantic list of support that's not going to mean anything. Absolutely. And that's what most of these Atlantis theories are. They, they, you know, come up with their answer and then they work backwards from there. And, you know, I mean, they're one of the most popular theories to explain Atlantis is, uh, earth crust displacement. Which is that, uh, the, you know, around, I think they say around 9,600 years ago, the outside of the earth crust suddenly shifted like the skin of an orange. And Atlantis had been located in what is now the middle of the Atlantic, but now, then it was shifted down to where Antarctica is now. So all the evidence of Atlantis is buried under ice. And we know this because a map that some Jesuit priest drew in the 17th century kind of looks like a 1950s, you know, aerial radar map of Atlantis or something. And it's like, I don't know where to begin with the, the possible <laughs> holes in this story. It's like, well, why do you keep using a 1950s map, for example? There's more recent maps than that. Uh, you know, why do you believe that this 17th century map was real? Uh, when it seems to have just been something the, the guy sort of doodled, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, you can chase your tail all day trying to poke holes in these things when they come up with the answer first. Yeah. So have there been any uh, kind of developments in Atlantology since the book was published? I haven't seen any major developments. You know, usually what you see is, you know, a little thing here or there, like um, I think about a year ago, some people found a big shipment of copper on the floor of the Mediterranean. And one of the things Plato talks about is Atlantis having this, you know, fiery, bright mineral called orichalcum that ever since people have been trying to figure out what he referred to, it's, it's probably a form of copper. Um, but you know, then people say, oh, well, if there's this copper in the Western Mediterranean, then obviously it was coming from Atlantis. Uh, you know, um, Stavros Papamarinopoulos, who is, you know, probably the most credentialed guy who I talked to. He's the geophysicist from Greece. Um, he really wants to do uh, a full scale geophysical survey of a site in southern Spain. 
because it could correspond with the city you mentioned before, Tartessus, which is an ancient lost city that um, experts generally believe did exist at one time and may have actually served as the inspiration for the Atlantis story. Um, what Papa Marimonopoulos wants to do is go in with ground penetrating radar and, you know, aerial and blah, blah, blah. The problem is that the site he wants to look at is in the middle of a national park in a bird sanctuary. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I would say the chances of him actually getting in there with his backhoe or whatever is going to be pretty slight. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're pretty much out of time. So just, Mark, do you have any other projects you want to mention or any final words or anything? Um, let's see. Um, you know, this summer I'm going to spend most of it in Alaska. I'm not looking for any lost cities. I'm going to be <laughs> retracing an expedition from 1899 uh, put together by uh, Edward Harriman, the railroad tycoon. Um, interesting, especially because... Uh, the, the folks he brought along with him included people like John Muir, who founded the Sierra Club and, um, helped to uh, save Yosemite. Uh, Edward Curtis, the great, uh, photographer of, of Native Americans. Um, George Bird Grinnell of the Audubon Society. Um, just an, an incredible who's who of, of late 19th century naturalism. And they sort of took this snapshot of Alaska. Uh, right before, um, you know, um, what we would call climate change started to, to come into effect. Um, so I think that'll be a lot of fun. Um, it'll be a lot of fun not to have to talk about Atlantis, I have <laughs> to admit. Uh, it's a fun subject, but, uh, you know, I, I've noticed that whenever I post anything online, one out of 10 people will say something like, Hey, you know, I didn't know this. I didn't realize there was all this interesting information about Atlantis based in Plato and all this research that has been done. And nine out of 10 people will be like, I believe that 50,000 years ago, the aliens <laughs> came and, you know, so as, <laughs> I guess if I guess I could settle for one out of 10 and, I, and I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, maybe we can build from there. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll let you go so you can stop talking about Atlantis. Uh... <laughs> But uh, so we've been speaking with Mark Adams and the book again, it's called Meet Me in Atlantis. Uh, so, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Dave. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mark Adams for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Salt E. Dog, who writes, The one podcast to rule them all. I listen to many podcasts, but look forward to Geek's Guide more than any others. The interviews, subject matter, and guests are always top-notch. This helped me take my geekiness to another level, and I have since been reading a lot more science fiction and sometimes fantasy. Without this podcast, I may have missed out on the genius of Douglas Adams as just one example. I will say that I am LDS, parentheses Mormon, and occasionally have differences of opinion with the host's atheist views, but I feel that is a valuable part of free speech and thought. So big thanks again to Salt E. Dog for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. Over 100 listeners have supported us on PayPal, and almost 200 are supporting us on Patreon. So huge thanks to all of you. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.